Hey, it's Scott. You know, this episode is really intriguing to me. And it's kind of personal, in a way. I'm going to be talking with author Cynthia Covey Haller. And if her middle name, Covey, sounds familiar, well, that may be because you recall us speaking with her brother, Stephen M.R. Covey, a few episodes ago. And of course, her father is Stephen R. Covey from The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And her new book, which is Live Life in Crescendo, Your Most Important Work is Always Ahead of You, is interesting to me because I think so many of us are going through lives and we've reached a point where we've made some success. Maybe we've raised a good family. Maybe we've had a great career. Maybe we made some achievement in high school or in college. And we look back on it with just great memories and almost wistfulness, thinking that, well, that's the best I'm ever going to do. And personally, you know, I look back at my time at Ford Motor Company, where I was given an amazing opportunity to serve as an executive there with a tremendously talented team of people. And at the time, we made some great progress. Uh, I felt professionally fulfilled and achieved what I set out to do there. And then I left and started my own consulting, speaking business. And I still look back at that and wonder, will I ever achieve that kind of greatness again. And in my conversation with Cynthia and in reading her book, and well, really Stephen and her book, I realized that I'm looking at it wrong. And I think that's something that probably goes for many other people as well. That we're looking at what it is we're achieving with a different lens. And I think too often we look at it through the lens of what we expect other people to judge us by. How externalities look at success. And this is a theme I hear over and over again. As a matter of fact, our very first episode, broadly titled Luck, was with Laura Gassner-Otting. And she's got a new TED Talk out. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. Where she's already achieved over 100,000 views in just two weeks, talking about success and happiness. And it seems to me that people are looking for something, looking for answers, looking for a hole to fill regarding whether they have achieved their ultimate purpose, their ultimate goal. And in reading Live Life in Crescendo and in speaking with Cynthia today, I found that it's really about much more than checking a box on a corporate entry or on a resume. And no matter where you are in life, if you're already in the second half of your life, if you're going through a midlife crisis, if you're at the pinnacle of your career right now, I want you to listen to this episode and to really take it to heart because I think so many people are struggling with 
the things they leave behind. And they need to remember that there's still so much in front of them. And what's in front of you will matter based on the purpose you choose and the mission you put in front of yourself. Because we can all continue to live an expansive life in crescendo. So I hope you'll enjoy this episode and please drop me a line and let me know what you think of it. Have you ever admired a leader and wondered just what it is that makes her who she is? How he came to embrace the things that advanced him? Welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we look at the principles that define success. This is a show for leaders at all stages of their careers who aspire to understand what it truly means to be a leader. And who is a leader? Dolly Parton said, If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. Together, we'll explore key principles, not only in the sense of fundamentals, but also in the ethical sense, the habits, character traits, and virtues that form the backbone of leadership. Principles that are just as relevant and essential in the 21st century as they were in the first century. This is Timeless Leadership. Hi there, this is your official welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we explore principles and virtues that accompany successful and admirable leaders. I'm your host, Scott Monty. I do this every two weeks. I'm honored that you would take the time to be with me now. And Timeless Leadership is part of the Timeless and Timely family of publications, which you can find at TimelessTimely.com. I hope you'll check that out. We do some fun things on Saturdays with uh, words in a publication called Off the Clock. And uh, occasionally I do another podcast called Storytime, which is all about creating great stories, which is something that every leader needs. Every leader needs to understand the power of storytelling. So just check it out at TimelessTimely.com. And wherever you're listening to me, if you could give the show a rating, whether you're on Good Pods or Spotify or Apple Podcasts, I'd appreciate a rating. Give it however many stars you like. I'm not going to bug you for five stars. I'll leave it up to you because you are a principled leader. I know how you roll. <laughs> so if there's anything I can do for you, if there's anything I can help you with, if there's something that you, you have on your mind, please get in touch with me. You can email me at podcast at scottmonte.com or simply leave a comment on any of our entries on the Timeless and Timely website. Be happy to hear from you. I'd be delighted to come in and speak to your group or to your event or to work with your leadership team on becoming better leaders and better communicators. So let's get on with the show. Cynthia Covey-Haller is an author, teacher, speaker, and an active participant in her community. She's contributed to the writing of several books and articles, notably The Third Alternative by Stephen R. Covey, 
the seven habits of highly effective teens, and the six most important decisions you'll ever make, both by Sean Covey. Cynthia's held multiple leadership positions in women's organizations, served as PTSA president, an organizer for refugee aid and food pantry volunteer, and she's currently working with her husband, Cameron, as a service volunteer helping with employment needs. She graduated from Brigham Young University and lives with her family in Salt Lake City, Utah. Cynthia Covey-Haller, welcome to Timeless Leadership. Thanks so much for having me on, Scott. I really appreciate it. Well, I can't tell you how excited I am to talk with you. You are the second Covey to make it onto Timeless Leadership, along with your brother, Stephen M.R. Covey. And of course, your father is legendary in the business and leadership world. And the way this book is positioned, Live Life in Crescendo, your most important work is always ahead of you, is that it is your father's final work, and it's done in conjunction with you. So I wonder if we might start talking about how this project, how this idea first came to your dad. Sure, that'd be great. Uh, this was many years ago, literally probably back to 2008, when we were having a conversation my father and I, and um, I foolishly asked him if he was ever going to write anything like Seven Habits, <laughs> as, as good or as meaningful, and, and um, though not intended, I think I insulted him. And he just said, do, do you think that all I, you know, am I just one and done? Is this the only thing that I have that's in me? I wrote it back in 1989, and I've got to believe that I still have things I can contribute. And that's why I get up every day to write and teach and to learn. And I hope I still have some other things that will come out that would inspire other people. And so I realized, yeah, you're right. And he did go on to write uh, The Eighth Habit, The Third Alternative. I don't know what it is with him and numbers, <laughs> Seven Habits. But um, one of his ideas that he was working on, and he was, he was working on multiple projects, um, at this time, and one of them was his mission statement for the last, really the last 10 years of his life, and that is live life in crescendo. And I think that he adopted that um, mission statement because people would ask him if he was ready to retire and how much longer he was go going to go on uh, speaking and writing and things. And and um, I think it, he saw his mortality a little, and I think it bothered him that he thought, well, as long as I have passion for what I'm doing and I feel like I'm making a difference and contributing, I'm going to keep out, out there. I'm going to keep writing. And in our home, um, we didn't say the R word, retirement. <laughs> he, he didn't really believe in it um, in the traditional sense. He always felt that um, we could, that you could keep, even if you did retire from a job or a career, that um, the third alternative was to keep contributing. It wasn't just retire or keep working. The, the, the third alternative that helped both of those was to keep making contributions. And so he assigned me, Scott, to, um, to he said, if you take this material from Live Life from Crescendo, we can talk with, um, we can have some interviews and, and talk about it and 
if you could write some inspiring, find some inspiring stories and examples of people who are living in crescendo, as opposed to living in diminuendo, then let's put this book together. And so that was my assignment. And unfortunately, he passed away um, before I'd finished. I worked for a while on it with him, but with kids and, and other things I was doing in the community, I didn't get finished. And so I hopefully have been his faithful translator and finished it up 10 years. It's been 10 years since he passed away. So I'm thrilled that it's finally released. Oh, that's fantastic. And yeah, I mean, I, I can only imagine uh, the, the pride and joy that your father must feel now, realizing that this is done, looking down and seeing the, the fruits of both of your labor uh, finally come to life. I hope so. I, I think so too. I think he he's he liked to go on a little Honda ride with my mom up in. Uh, he would be riding around the neighborhood talking. So I like to think of him popping wheelies and going around there, being excited that it's finally out. He's thrilled that that we finished it. So hopefully. That's great. And just to be clear, that's uh, you're talking about a Honda motorcycle, right? That's right. right. <laughs> yeah, a little Honda ninety. <laughs> They used to go on rides and they'd kind of talk and renew their relationship every day. It was wonderful to see. So hopefully he's still riding up in heaven somewhere. Yeah. So I'm, I'm interested in the metaphor here that's used for the entire book, Live Life in Crescendo. Crescendo, of course, is a musical, a part of musical terminology. Is your family, uh, are you very musical? Not really. My mom had a beautiful voice and she sang with a, a choir for many years. And she, sometimes when my dad would go and speak, he would ask her to stand up and sing extemporaneously, which she could do. But uh, the, we're not really musical. But I think he chose this because it's such a vital symbol crescendo. If you've been to a concert, everybody knows what a crescendo is and how it um, starts out slowly and it builds momentum and it continues with a lot of energy and power and um, just it is powerful and comes through um, you know if you've heard a crescendo in in an orchestra or something it's unforgettable it's it's it, it keeps expanding like the sign of a crescendo the lines don't touch again they keep going outward where the opposite uh, diminuendo the opposite sign, um, the music slows and it and it um, lessens in energy and power and strength and soon it comes to an end. And so he believed that in any age or stage of our life and life's ups and downs and setbacks and things that we encounter, that we willingly and purposefully need to choose to live in crescendo, believing that we can still learn, we can still grow. Um, we have, may have to redefine ourselves. We may have to start over. We may have to um, re-examine where we are and make changes. But he felt if we are proactive and we make those choices that we can keep living in crescendo, meaning, you know, life can still keep growing and getting better and intensifying. And we still have a lot to contribute. And the subtitle of the book, Your Most Important Work is Always Ahead of You, is really crucial to living in crescendo. And that just means that regardless, as I've said, at what stage you're in or age or what you've gone through, you still have important things ahead of you to accomplish and to, to do, to bring about 
and especially to contribute in the lives of others. Yeah, and I love that. I mean, and to me, there there's so much potential that's wrapped up in, uh, you know, the the mentality, the wisdom of people as they age, as they gain more experience. And yet we seem to be at a time where there is rampant ageism that's going on, where society is attuned to the the trends of younger people, the interests of younger people and uh, older people, uh, for lack of a better term, are kind of put out to pasture or ignored or even discriminated against in some hiring practices. And yet the, the, the principle here is that anyone at any stage in their life or in their career can reposition themselves to, uh, to, to a certain purpose. That's really true. And you think about it, Scott, um, when you're older, when you're in your 60s, 70s, um, what better opportunity do you have to contribute and to serve and to do what you can to better the situation of people that maybe need help? You have more wisdom, more experience, more connections, more uh, lifetime of acquiring skills and talents to offer than ever before in your whole life. And usually more time if you do choose to uh, retire from a job, then as, as he was saying, don't retire from making contributions by looking around you in your community maybe even in your own family, maybe when someone is struggling from a divorce or grandchildren or, or suffering with an addiction, or maybe there's something in your, in your neighborhood or your community where you really see an acute need that you can meet. And this is the greatest time of life, the second half of life is what it's called, to meet those challenges and um, participate willingly to um, improve a lot of those around you and so it's really a you can look at it as a you know time to live in diminuendo and kind of shut down as like you're saying society says oh older people you know they can't contribute as much or they you know they're kind of put out to pasture and and we we're looking at the younger generation but if you look around and see coaches and see i mean we have a president of the united states we have people all over, you know, making contributions in many ways as they get older. And it's a powerful example and, and showing what you can do in this, this age of your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, to keep the, uh, the musical uh, uh, relation alive here, uh, one of the famous quotes from uh, Arthur Fiedler, who was uh, the first director of the Boston Pops, uh, he said, and he conducted right right until his last month of life, he said, you rest, you rot. <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, you know, you can't, you know, um, you can't stop. I, I, read, I read about a person that wrote uh, How to Be 100, How to Live to Be 100, and he said, you want to go with your foot on the pedal. You want to go fully engaged, not in idle. So, so just in a couple examples, uh, Winston Churchill, he was 66 when he became the prime minister during uh, Britain's darkest hour, and he said that he felt like all of his past life had been but a preparation for this hour and this trial and felt that he knew, you know, I said, he said, I knew a great deal about it and felt I would not fail. And so he, you know, he, a lot of times people say the first two thirds of their life are preparation 
for this second half of life, this last third of life that um, where you can contribute. Another example of someone that's you know not famous like Winston Churchill, an ordinary person, is a woman that, that lived close to my area who retired, uh, moved. I'm from Utah and she moved from Texas to Utah um, to be closer to her grandkids. She was 77 and her main goal when she got here was just to spoil her grandkids and just have fun with them. And then she looked around her small town and saw that the illiteracy rate was unusually high in children and even in some adults. And so she just she just thought, I, I got to get involved. And here you think, well, you're 77. What can you do? Well, she went to the mayor and asked for a small room to start tutoring kids to read. And he basically gave her a little closet <laughs> that wasn't being used. And then pretty soon uh, she got a, a larger area and then she got the school buses to take uh, kids um, to be able to take them to tutoring and she got volunteers and you know after so many years of tutoring kids and adults um, with the motto readers make leaders um, she said I mean eventually she has reached over 300,000 people in this little area from just starting out seeing us a need and just thinking, I'm not too old, I can do something and, and getting involved and has changed that community with literacy. It's, it's incredible to see. That's amazing. And, you know, I'm, I'm struck also, and not only by the, uh, you know, the ability for people to reinvent themselves or to find a purpose, uh, you know, in this second half of life, but there, there's a quote uh, toward the end of the book from uh, Dwight L. Moody that says, Preparation for old age should begin not later than one's teens. A life which is empty of purpose until 65 will not suddenly become filled on retirement. And that really says something about you know, the kind of person you are, the principles, the characters you inhabit throughout your entire life rather than just trying to grasp at straws in the second half. That's true. You can't, um, you know, it's not something that you just, I mean, if you are that age, you know, you can still practice living in crescendo, but it's something that you should take through every age and stage of life. And my father explained uh, the crescendo mentality as like a paradigm, which is a, like a pair of glasses that you would put on a, a perspective that you view all of life through. And so um, in the book I talk about, and you may get into this a little later, but I talk about different stages and ages, such as a midlife stage, a pinnacle of success stage, a life setbacks stage, and then the second half of life. So you need to prepare now, if, you, if you're in your teens, if you're in your 30s or 40s, you, to think ahead, to think, I'm going to keep living in crescendo. I'm going to consciously choose that mentality, the crescendo mentality, as I go through, a, you know, a layoff from a job or um, a setback in my a family relationship or um, something that a health issue, you know, you develop cancer or someone close to you dies or something happens. How are you going to consciously choose to react to that? We know that we can't choose what happens to us, but we can choose our response to what happens to us. And that's what the crescendo mentality is all about. 
Yeah, so let's talk about uh, some of those four sections. We, we start uh, at the beginning of the book with uh, midlife struggle, and uh, the musical term you, uh, you, you associate with this is fermata, which is a pause. And, and the thing I love about uh, this very first section is the willingness to look at your life, not as part of a career, but as the totality of a mission. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, um, the midlife stage is where a lot of us struggle. You know, you you kind of a midlife is kind of like you wake up one day and you're not where you thought you were going to be at that age. That really could happen in your 30s, 40s, 50s, you know, 60s. You think, gosh, I thought I'd be further down the road. I thought I'd be more successful. I thought I'd be doing something different. And so, how are you going to respond to that? Um, a lot of people flip out and do crazy things during that midlife stage. But um, as, as, as we all know, we've, we've heard examples of that. But my father challenges that in the midlife stage that um, there's two important perspectives. And one is um, if you, well, if you want to make, um, to make, want to make small changes in your life, you work on your attitude. If you want to make big and primary changes, you work on your paradigm. And so the perspective, the first perspective would be that see true success for what it is. Um, it's not necessarily how society defines it. And I use the example of George Bailey, because <laughs> everyone knows that in A Wonderful Life, yeah. who thought he was not successful at all. I mean, because he didn't get to go and be an architect. He didn't leave Bedford Falls. He, he was the stable force in that community uh, for these small business and loans um, company that um, helped all these people, the whole community, um, reach their goals of having a decent place to live and raising their families. And when he was, when he was taken out of that, when, they, when the angel said to him, um, let's see what your life was like without you, then it left a big hole and he said you you actually look what happened when you're not there you actually had a wonderful life um you had all these all you helped so many people and you didn't even realize it so he was he was successful and he didn't he didn't appreciate or realize it because he was judging it by the world standards and so my father is defining success here as being uh, working to be successful at your most important roles in life. And you have to determine what those are according to your values, kind of your moral compass. And um, many of the most important roles have to do with your, your roles in leadership and your, in, your in your family as a, as a wife and a husband, as a father, a mother, as a, um, a son or daughter. Those are important roles. And if you're not in a family relationship um, role like that, that's important to you. I talk about being successful. I, I mentioned the, a story of a man uh, named Dr. Rick Hodges, who was single and uh, saw a real need in Ethiopia when he visited there as a, as a medical student and saw that there was just no one to take care of these people for hundreds of miles. And he decided his his greatest role he wanted to succeed at was to be a humanitarian and to help these people in this in this country that had so little medical help. 
And so he set up shop there and it's one room hut kind of basically and uses the sun to read x-rays and enlist the help of his colleagues back at home for surgeries and for donations. And um, just his, his most important role to him was just reaching this need in Ethiopia, being the only doctor within 400 miles that could help these people. And so that's the, the first perspective is being successful, seeing true success for what it is and being successful in your most important roles. And the second one is, if you do see that, you know, I don't have a good job, I'm not making enough money, I don't feel appreciated, it's not using my talents, um, I have a marriage that's failing, I'm not in good health, is to take control and act, make it happen, be proactive and recognize that you need to pivot. You've got this formata, this pause in your life and use that opportunity to make a positive change through your actions. And one example of that is this that I say in the book is a principle that was almost 400 pounds and um, could hardly walk down the hall. But yet he had a great vision for his school, this junior high, and he knew what he wanted to do with it, but he was so unhealthy and could hardly, could hardly um, do anything that he had to, he decided I'm either gonna die, I'm living in diminuendo, I'm going downhill, or I've got to take control of my life and recognize that I need to make a change. And he did that, he was proactive and, and you know, started walking, joined Weight Watchers, did what he could. It took him over a year and he um, lost about 150 pounds and then kept going and eventually was able to run marathons and the greatest thing was a leader, an example to those in his school, um, the, the, uh, his assistant, his the secretary, a lot of the teachers all looked at themselves and start, saw his example and started getting healthy again. And so he was able to take control of his life and therefore his career and his, his role as that was important to him of being a principal. Yeah, and I think the the thing with uh, his story, and and also with the story of um, uh, the British parliamentarian Wilberforce, who uh, went for um, uh, you know kind of uh, helping to solve the slavery problem in uh, Great Britain, it took him twenty years. And both of these are a great reminder that uh, these things don't happen overnight. When you you've got a vision and a and a goal. Uh, it's something you need to work toward, but it's also something that you can't do completely on your own either. Right, you, you're right. Uh, Wilberforce, William Wilberforce was a, is a great example because um, he was a member of Parliament in Britain and tried to end the slave trade. It's just the abuses that were going on and how horrible it was, the lifestyle for these these people that were enslaved. And But the members of parliament, they all uh, benefited from those interests of the slave trade. And so, like you said, it took him 20 years to for his circle of influence as a leader to grow and expand through educating them through, if you've seen the movie Amazing Grace, it's a fantastic movie that he, he kind of tricks some of the leaders in parliament to going on this ride down the, the Thames and they go past the slave ships that have just been emptied and the stench from it and the death that occurred on it and they see these shackles that these people were, were had to endure and how many died that it permeated their consciences. 
and soon they it took it took years to break this down and a lot of help like you said it takes usually a team to do things like this but after tw after being voted down time after time and being jeered and laughed at and and just ignored for so many years after 20 years finally when he rose for the how many you know hundredth time to propose to end the slave trade he had almost all the votes of parliament his circle of influence had increased and enlarged because of his proactivity and his dedication to having such vision of of, of getting rid of the slave trade that finally it permeated um, all of parliament and they voted to to dissolve it but almost at the peril of his life he, he suffered from poor health because of it but what a visionary uh, leader he was and it does take a, a long time sometimes in a, in a big team but it can happen yeah and this kind of leads into the the second section of the book which is pinnacle of success and the first chapter there is that uh people are more important than things. And this is essentially what we just saw with Wilberforce and kind of human rights and uh, with that principle there, you know, worried about his students, that it, it it's not about material possessions and it's not necessarily about uh, financial success. It's really fundamentally about building relationships. Yes, that's, that's true. Uh, I think Wilberforce, little by little, did build relationships with all those people and influence them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say one of the uh, stories that really stuck out to me because it's so personal to your dad and, and mom is uh, the story with Chip Smith building your dad's cabin. You want to recount that for us? Yes. Um, that was our family builder up in Montana. He was building a cabin for my parents. And um they they we live in you know they live in utah and this is up in montana which is six or seven hours away and it was during the winter and he had a lot of crucial things to go over with them so they decided to drive up um through the through the cold and the icy roads and meet with them in the meantime uh they had heard um from others in, in, in around that area that chip was suffering um from a, a divorce going through an unwanted divorce and was really struggling and so when they finally met the plan was to meet for dinner and discuss uh the cabin and all the decisions for a couple hours and then they'd go back to their hotel room and my father had to fly out the next day somewhere so he had to leave at like five in the morning so their time was very limited but when they got there to the restaurant they could see what this uh, personal toll had taken on their friend and builder, uh, Chip. And so he started to go through all these questions and, and talking to them about what they wanted to do with their cabin. And, and my mom interrupted him and said, uh, you know, Chip, we understand you're going through a hard time personally, and we're so sorry about that. Maybe we could discuss that. And, and he dismissed it and said, no, no, you've you've traveled so far and we we just have a little short time. We need to go over these questions. And two or three other times uh, they interrupted him and basically said the last time to him, uh, you are more important than building our family cabin right now. That will that will take place. But we are concerned about you and the state that you're in right now and what this is doing to your life. And uh, he he broke down and and cried and said and and told them what a hard thing it was and they spent the rest of the night discussing you know his personal situation 
And so after when my when my father then they they went home to their hotel and and drove home without having discussed the cabin at all. <laughs> and so, but when 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 my father passed away um, ten years ago, Chip sent us an email and said, "I just want to tell you what that meant to me." Uh, that your parents would care more about me and my situation with my divorce and how miserable and unhappy I was than all the questions and things they had to, we had to resolve about your cabin. And it was, it was really, it, it meant a lot to him. And after the funeral, we went up, he eventually built the cabin. I mean, he got through this divorce and, and, you know, has, has gone on to have a, a happy life and built a lot of cabins. After um, after this happened, my um, after the, the funeral, we went up there to Montana and opened the door and found that bats <laughs> had like taken over the cabin oh, and it just it was just awful. We didn't know what to do. We were just coming off the funeral. We all were tearful, and our, my, our dad always took care of things like this. And um, so we we I called Chip. He came over immediately with a crew, worked all day to help us resolve the, the bad issue with how they were getting in, even started cleaning out the garage, doing things my father would have done. And When I thanked him and offered to pay him, he again got emotional and said, I wouldn't take any compensation. I, I did this because your parents were there for me in the darkest part of time of my life. And this is a small way I can repay them. They showed how important my relationship was to them. And I want to repay it with you. Wow. That's uh, just astounding. And I have to tell you, when I read that story in the book, I started to tear up as well because I just found it so touching. Um, well, pe people really are more important than things. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. the deathbed le literature doesn't show that people are talking about their careers and their money and their possessions when they pass away. They're talking about their family relationships and, you know, and are grateful that they have their family there and or the lack of them, the regret that they don't have that. And one of the main ideas of the book is um, life is about contribution, not accumulation. That's so important. And uh, yeah, I think there was one story where there's a, uh, a, a, and it is just a story. Uh, there's a couple of guys looking in at a, a coffin at a funeral, and uh, one said to the other, uh, how much do you think he left behind? And the other one said, all of it. <laughs> yeah. You, you, don't, you know, you spend your whole life, um, you know, accumulating things and the, the accumulation of possessions that mean really virtually nothing to you at the end. You can't take it with you. And, you know, you can you can take your family, you can take your relationships, your family and friends, you can take your character, you can take the primary greatness that you've established in your life, but you can't, there's nothing else in the coffin with you. Yeah. And I don't know if you happened to see this, uh, maybe a couple of years ago, uh, David Brooks for the New York Times wrote a column about resume virtues versus, uh, um, I think it was obituary virtues or something along those lines. It basically is, what do you want to be remembered for? And uh, it's just a, an incredibly helpful ep exercise to think about what what do you want your obituary to say about you? And in, in the when your life in totality is assessed, what will people remember you for? We talk about that in the book. The idea that be the best way to predict your future is to create it. So create it before you live it in fact. 
And so you think, you know, what, if I went to, if I got to see my funeral, what would you, what would your legacy be? What would you want to be remembered for? Um, what important things would you want to be said about you, you know, that would sum up your life? And that, that, that could kind of lead you to, you know, you predict your future by creating it, by going about and, and realizing where true success really lies. And, um, and being successful in your most important roles is kind of at the heart of it. Yeah. One of the things that really struck me, and it was, it was on the chapter following that story about Chip and your parents and how they made him feel um, as an individual so much more important than the thing they had in their life, the cabin. Uh, and that is that leadership equals communicating worth and potential. And can you talk a little bit about what it means to, to truly communicate people's worth and potential to them? Uh, yes, um, this is a great podcast you have, Scott, because it, it talks about leaders and leadership and, and how to uh, build a bridge for others to follow. And that's my father's best uh, definition of leadership, which he just, which I could just reiterate again. It's communicating another's worth and potential so clearly that they are inspired to see it in themselves. And if you were to ask most people who believed in you, when you, maybe you didn't believe in yourself, most people would be able to point to maybe a parent or a coach or, um, you know, a, someone in the neighborhood, a older person maybe that saw something in them or a mentor and how powerful that influence is in your life. Someone saw your worth and potential when you didn't see it yet. And um, my, I have a, an example in, in the book about it actually is my son that um, w went to work as an intern, kind of a, a lowly intern for a CEO of, in a bank, a, a pretty big bank. And uh, this was a well-known, reputable person that took him on kind of as a personal intern. And we prepped him that you're basically going to be doing, you're a gopher person. <laughs> You'll do whatever you, you know, you might go be getting him donuts. You might be, you know, taking things down the hall. You, you, you're kind of a fly on the wall listening and things. And, and, you know, you're the intern, but this leader, um, Scott didn't see it like that at all. He just said, I'm not going to have you do the normal intern things. I'm going to show you how to run a, a company as, as a CEO. And I'm going to give you responsibilities um, far beyond what you think you can do. So buck up and be ready. And then he would give him assignments as this, you know, 22 year old intern to speak to his board. Um, he would on some project that he felt like was way outside his comfort zone. But because he believed in him and put all this trust in him, he sure, you know, did the work. He, he would spend, you know, as much time as he could and weekends preparing to uh, give this 10 minute presentation uh, for his board. And, and, and Scott, the CEO would introduce him. Um, my son said he'd introduce him like to uh, prominent people in the community when they'd come to meet with him. He would allow him to sit in on, on the meetings and introduce him as like he was a big deal. You've got to meet my new intern. <laughs> he's, he's wonderful. And here he's meeting like the mayor and, you know, these other business leaders. And, and um, he, this made this really uh, resonated so much with our son that um, 
he would he would suggest uh, books to read and take a personal interest in his life and who he was dating and his studies and and give him big assignments and build him up in front of prominent people to the point where he felt like I I, I think I I have something to offer maybe I can do something like this someday and it really uh, you know altered his career and his belief in himself and he determined when I get to be in a position like this. I'm going to definitely mentor someone as he has me. Exactly. And that's, I think there's a Tom Peters quote in the book that um, being a leader isn't about gaining followers, but it's about creating more leaders. And that's essentially what happened on uh, your son's internship there. Right. Um, leadership is a choice, not a position. Mm. And you, and John Wooden, uh, you know, who is known for mentoring I mean, he's also known for being one of the greatest basketball coaches, you know, we've ever had. And yet the last uh, third of his life was spent in mentoring. And he said, that's why I get up every day to mentor and be mentored and to uh, build a bridge for other people. Yeah, um, yeah. One, one great example is um, William Henley, uh, this, this young boy, unknown boy in England that uh, was living in poverty with his a single mother, his father had died and he went to school and this headmaster took an interest in him and saw something in him like we we're talking about and, and believed in him, taught him poetry to understand and write poetry and really befriended him when he said he needed a friend more, he needed kindness in his life more than anything else. He you know, he later went on to get tuberculosis and spent months in a hospital and ended up dying in his 30s. Well, when William Henley, before he died, wrote his greatest poem or most famous poem was Invictus, which was um, has the famous line, I am the captain of my soul. I am the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. And who does this attract the attention of but Nelson Mandela, who is in prison on Robben Island in South Africa for his for his um, rebellious actions, but he is a, a, a still a leader, and he reads this and he decides I can determine my own fate and I can choose my response to what happens to me, and he inspires the the people around him. Even prison guards come to him for advice and fellow prisoners. And then he, look what happens. Talk about a crescendo, a life in crescendo. Yeah, He's yeah. released from prison at 71. 71 years old, he gets out of prison after 27 or 28 years. And you'd think, oh, that's too bad. His whole life is gone. And here he is, at, finally released at 71. What can he do? And yet he um, begins to, um, he, learned to, he learned to change inside of the prison and to realize that he can make different choices and helps people see that. And all of a sudden they're they're, um, he's running for president with William de Klerk, who was the president when he was in prison as his vice president and they're dismantling apartheid. And so um, then it's affecting all of South Africa where people, the um, black people can vote for the first time and it influenced the entire world. But this ripple in the pond began with um, William Henley and his um, and his poem and the and the the schoolmaster that was kind to him and nurtured him and saw potential in him. So look where it can go. It's a domino effect. Yeah, another vote for history and literature and study studying that at all phases of our lives. 
Um, so this naturally leads into the third section, which is life-changing setbacks. And it's encouraging, literally, people to live in crescendo, not diminuendo. And uh, the, the, the notion here is that change starts with yourself and that if, you, if you're looking for a second chance, you really need to take the risk with yourself first. And then what happens after that? Um, I have a great example of, of the difference between living in crescendo, like you say, making the choice to consciously choose that or to slip into minuendo where you have no influence or power. And that is concerning a man named um, Anthony Ray Hinton, who in the late 80s was um, falsely imprisoned and convicted of killing two people in Alabama that he had nothing to do with. And um, he was he knew he was innocent and trusted in the, the legal system there, which betrayed him. It was basically they just framed him um, and he found himself on death row. And he is so angry and full of despair um, for what's happened to him and his life, as you could imagine, that he comes into his jail cell and throws his Bible under his bed and determines, if this is what they think of me, I'm done. I'm going to shut down. I'm giving nothing. This is this is my end of my life, basically. And so he starts living in diminuendo by not speaking to anyone for three years, three miserable long years. He doesn't speak to the guards, to his fellow death room uh, uh, row mates, anyone that he comes in contact with, except for his family and friends that visit him once a, once a week. He doesn't utter a word and just shuts down. So he has no power, no influence, and he's absolutely miserable. But he thinks he doesn't have a choice. And so one night at two in the morning, he hears um, next to him in the cell next to him, a man just bitterly crying and calling out for help and so unhappy and not able to hold on any longer. And something awakens in Ray, his, his own goodness and his own character that he has suppressed um, comes forth and he has compassion and wants to reach out to this man. And he um, breaks his three years of silence and, and speaks to him and finds out, he said, he said at first when he heard this, he, he realized, he said, I can't, I can't choose if I'm on death row and that they frame me and this is, I'm here, you know, I'm, I'm convicted for something I didn't do. I can't choose that, but I do have other choices. Despair and hate are a choice, but so are love and compassion. And so he breaks his three years of silence and begins comforting this total stranger next to him and finds out this, this inmate's mother has just died. And this person is so devastated, he can't, he feels like he can't go on. And so Ray talks to him and, and gets him laughing and talking about his mother and the memories of that and connects with this person and realizes how great it makes him feel and, and realizes I do have other choices. I, I have, they might be limited in prison, but I can do, I can, uh, I don't have to hate and I can show compassion to others. And so for the next 14 to 20 years, he's a light and a beacon in that prison to not only his fellow um, death row mates, but also to guards. He talks that um, the, 
person in charge to letting him have a book club. He, he transports these prisoners by talking about great ideas and places and different things and gets them to forget their surroundings. And finally attracts the attention of uh, Brian Stevenson, who, is, who has started Equal Justice Initiative. I don't know if you've seen the movie um, Just Mercy and the, and the book where he represents people that have been unjustly convicted. And so after almost 30 years, um, Brian Stevenson appeals before the, takes it all the way to the top, the Supreme Court of the United States, and they free him, realizing what a horrible mistake that this man has even been incarcerated. And after 30 years almost, he comes out of prison and he says to his family and friends, the sun does shine. And that becomes the title of um, a New York best time seller four years later that he writes and recounts his journey of basically living from living in diminuendo to living in crescendo. And Ray now is is um, an advocate for Equal Justice Initiative. He's a best-selling author. He's a speaker. He helps people that have been in situations like him. He's known across the United States and his life is expanding in crescendo. He said, they took my 30s, my 40s, and my 50s, but what they couldn't take was my joy. Mm -hmm. And what an example of someone who consciously chose uh, to live a life in crescendo when he would have every reason to keep living in, in diminuendo and what yeah, a difference yeah. it made for him and for others. Amazing, really. Um, and and this actually gets to, you know, in, in terms of thinking about how we uh, manage to uh, resolve these setbacks, you've got a, a phrase that I love, use your R and I. What does that mean? Yeah, that we, as kids, we hated that phrase. <laughs> that R and I means resourcefulness and initiative. And so my dad would not allow us to make excuses for things. <laughs> like if we were flunking in math and would come home and say, oh, you know, I hate my teacher. He's, not, he's, he's awful and I'm, I'm flunking, I'm not doing well. And he would just say, use your R and I, make it happen. And we're like, no, no, you don't understand dad. This guy's really bad. He's a bad teacher. He doesn't explain. He's, he, he doesn't care about his students. And I, I don't understand the principles. Use your R and I. And that just meant do what it takes. If you need to transfer out of the class, do it. If you need to get some tutoring or help, take care of that. You know, you're responsible for your grade. You can't just say my teacher's bad and you hate him. And so um, R and I, you know, make it happen. That was his watchword. <laughs> That's what he would say to us. And we kind of joked as, as kids that we were glad we had a mother that would let us blame other people. <laughs> <laughs> he said, my parents were a good, a good balance for each other because we could say to my mom something about our teacher. It's like, oh, that's terrible. What's wrong with him? Why, why doesn't he be kinder to you? Or I got to talk to him or something. And there, so if we wanted to have our heart massage, we'd go to her. But if we wanted to have some action and um, take responsibility and hear the truth, we'd go to my, my dad and hear him say, R and I. <laughs> but that caused us to be responsible for ourselves and just think, you know, your, your education's up to you. Doesn't matter if you have a bad teacher, um, you know, your boyfriend dropped you or you had this bad thing happen, you know, just R and I, just get started again, you know, make it happen. 
Yeah, and I think that gets to the point that uh, you mentioned early in the book is um, not letting other people define success for you. In other words, not being influenced by external valuations of what the world thinks success looks like, but really fundamentally what it means to you and your purpose and your mission in life. That's exactly. You're the person that determines um, what you're going to be and how you're going to react to all these setbacks or to, to things that that happened to you. Ultimately, you've got to take the R&I yourself and uh, resourcefulness. That just means look around, do what you can, gather yourself, get educated again, um, you know, change your, uh, my, my dad kind of had a, a midlife um, struggle I talked about in the book. I don't know if he would have called it a midlife, but looking back, I'm, I'm sure it kind of was. He was at a university where he was teaching for over 20 years and was enjoying it and probably pretty comfortable and and decided that he felt like this was when he was writing the seven habits of highly effective people and developing that material and he wanted to try it out in the marketplace he was giving it to students and didn't feel like they were grasping or they could apply what he was teaching them and so he left a comfortable job um you know it, they didn't teachers don't make a lot professors don't make a lot but it was a stable income with insurance and I'm the oldest of nine kids <laughs> and he and my mom determined that they would uh, step out and he would do his own consulting business and leave this job and um, and kind of redefine himself and see if he could apply what he was developing these seven habits into the workplace and and he, he took that leap of faith he put his his uh, house in Hawk and we they tightened their belts during that time for probably a good 10 year period and then who uh, st started um, Covey, Covey Leadership, um, principle-centered leadership, and ultimately that set the foundation for um, his Seven Habits book and for all the consulting and the speaking that he did after that. And so um, sometimes you have to take control of your life and act, and it's not without risk, but um, you have to redefine yourself and keep living in crescendo if you feel like you're at a fermata, if you're at a pause, you need to take some action. Um, you've got to act. That's a great reminder. And we're so grateful that your father decided to take that risk when he did. So, Cynthia, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is as a musician, I, and I've, I was a musician or have been a musician for almost my entire life, and I, I note that when you see a crescendo written out on a piece of music, it's for eight bars or for an entire section of music or perhaps it actually extends the entire length of a piece like uh, bolero uh, for example but in our lives we don't necessarily know what the end of those eight bars is going to be how how is it then that we can actually make an assessment as to uh, how much to push into the crescendo, how much to pull back. In other words, uh, we, we're living our lives in a finite way, but without knowing what the end point is. Right. But that's kind of what makes it exciting, don't you think, Scott? You don't know is like that second half of the, like the subtitle, your most important work is always ahead of you. You don't know when you will have made your greatest contribution. And so you kind of, you know, keep going, keep pushing. 
And um, I mean, look at Jimmy Carter, for example, mm-hmm. um, you know, was a president of the United States, you'd say he reached the pinnacle of success, but yet he didn't get, uh, he didn't get reelected. And imagine how disappointing that was and, and humiliating to, to have that happen. And yet um, he determined, you know, that wasn't his highest point. That wasn't, um, you'd think, well, President of the United States, how much higher can you get? But instead of going home and just building a library and, and giving a lot of expensive speeches, he has become our greatest post-president we've ever had. He, within a year of coming out of the White House, he um, started the Carter Center to help broker peace. And then he's known as the face of Habitat for Humanity. He and Rosalind, I mean, into their 90s. I mean, he's still he's still going strong, even though he's had cancer. And I'm sure he's, you know, slowing down a little bit now. But into his 80s and 90s, Rosalind and he were traveling to other countries and helping with um, Habitat for Humanity. Uh, making a difference. So he's, you think, well, he's reached the pinnacle, but his um, his most important work was definitely ahead of him. He won't be written up in the history books as one of the greatest presidents, but he is by far our best post-president because of his contributions he's made to others. And so I'm, I, that's a good, you know, you don't really know when, when, when you've made your best contribution. That's, that's good. If I could, if you wouldn't mind, if I shared one more, I just learned of a man named Mike Mason, 63 year old man from Virginia. So he served his country in the military. He was a captain in the Marines. Then he went into the FBI and rose to become the number four man. However, they rate that in the FBI. And then after he retired then uh, from the FBI, he went on to be an executive in a Fortune 100 company. And then he, the R word, we don't say, then he retired, then he stopped. And he said he was, he just sat in his rocking chair and thought, you know what, I still have a mind. I still have things I'm capable of doing. This isn't, you know, I've got to do something that's really important and would be a big payout um, compared to all the other things that I've done. And so I guess what he chose, (laughs) he looked around in Virginia and apparently in Chesterfield County, the school district was down 125 bus drivers. And so he became, he, he applied to drive a bus. And he said, actually someone up high uh, called him when they got the resume and said, um, are you serious about this? Is this a joke? <laughs> you've been in the FBI and you've been an executive in Fortune 100 and you're applying to drive a bus? And he said, yeah, I feel like this is as important as being in the FBI. We need to get uh, past the idea that there are no unimportant jobs. And what could be more important than the attention we pay to the education system? So I continue to advance in my career. <laughs> He was paid a lot less and donated his salary to charity. And so at the height of his career, and now he says he's he's advancing his career by becoming a bus driver to show a leadership example of how important it is for education for our kids. So I loved I loved learning that. It was that's really inspiring to me. So, uh, Cynthia, we talked a little bit about uh, the second half. That's the the fourth section of the book about the second half of life. But I, I'm more interested now in getting to uh, the final section where, and I'm going to leave this up to you. You have two chapters there, one about your family's journey of living in Crescendo, which I'm sure you know uh, quite 
well since you've lived it. And the second one is uh, about your niece, Rachel Covey. Pick either one of those and tell us a little bit about how living life in Crescendo is exemplified in these stories. Okay. Um, Scott, uh, we chose to tell some family, some personal family stories uh, because we wanted people to see that everybody struggles with um, setbacks and with hard times and um, that that our family also had to has to practice living in crescendo and and just briefly we talked about three main challenges that we had one was the first one was our mom our mom who was the energizer buzz bunny her whole life had a back surgery that went wrong and she ended up in a wheelchair um, in her 70s and couldn't do very much and had to have someone always there to help her and how she responded to live in crescendo and how she how she d determined that that wasn't going to change her life and her being the matriarch to to all of us and the activities that she had planned with grandkids and the and the legacy she was leaving in her small town which was organizing this art fest art building and so that was the first one her how she reacted and how we responded to her um, you know, unfortunate surgery that, that went wrong. And the second thing was that about this same time, our father started acting kind of different than what, how we knew him. He was more apathetic and didn't have his same personality and we didn't understand what was happening. And he was ultimately diagnosed with front temple dementia. And this was shocking because he, they say, if you use your mind, you won't lose it. <laughs> but he was very active uh, reading and speaking and doing things and physically active as well. And um, this, this happened to him. It was, it must have been a hereditary thing. And, and uh, what a hard thing that was for our family to see our, our father who was so dynamic. And as you had mentioned, um, had influenced so many people through his books and writing to all of a sudden we're taking care of him and him not being able to communicate with us the same level of of love and concern that he'd always shown all nine of his kids and his his huge posterity of grandchildren and um then the final part is um so he he ultimately um he ultimately had a, a accident on his bike uh, he had his e-bike and it um he had internal bleeding and it ultimately took his life about four months later and what a what a thing that was for our family how we had to how we had to rally uh for him and for my mom and and determine that we weren't going to cry all the time that we had to we had so many blessings and we were grateful to have him for so long and so many people who showed up for us during that but then two months later uh, my my uh, beautiful niece rachel my brother sean um, daughter who was 21 and the second oldest in their family, the oldest daughter, she passed away from effects of depression. And this was devastating to our entire family and um, to, to Sean and Rebecca, particularly as, the, as one of the oldest of eight children. And um, what a hard thing that was when he, my, my brother had someone say to him, Sean, you know, you're always going to have a hole in your heart because of Rachel passing away because of the loss of Rachel. You kind of can't do anything about it. That's just how it is. And that really bothered him. And he determined, he said, no, I'm not going to have a hole. I'm going to develop a muscle there. As he realized I can, I have, I have, I have three choices. It can define me. It can destroy me or it can strengthen me. 
And Sean and Rebecca chose to have this loss of their beautiful daughter strengthen them. They put in the obituary that she died from depression. And uh, people that also suffered with that understood what that meant. And many people came to him and said, thank you for, for getting this mental health issue out into the open and talking about it. And some friends of Rachel came to them and said, you know, Rachel helped us through some hard times because of her love of horses. She took me horseback riding and that helped so much when I was really struggling with depression myself and having a hard time. And so they decided that they were going to take this Rachel's loss and make something good out of it that would be powerful to help other people that also struggle with depression, with abuse, with, with um, who have contemplated suicide, who have had trauma in their lives. And they formed Bridal Up Hope, which is a non-profit foundation that takes um, in girls from 14, 12 to, to 18. And then they've also opened it up to women who struggle with this, with depression and anxiety and all these for, forms, other forms of trauma and abuse. And girls can come and ride horses there. They have equestrian training that is, put, that is healing, found to be healing for people struggling with that. And then the second component is they combine it with seven habits of highly effective teens which is my dad's material, but Sean took it and adapted it to teenagers so that it's teaching them life skills on how to handle um, different things that happen to you. So with the equestrian training and the life skills that they're learning through these 14 lessons they go through, then the last component is, um, is service that they give back by helping with the horses, maybe mucking out the stalls, taking an art class, doing things that benefit other people as, as well as enriching themselves. And so over a thousand girls, Scott, have gone through this program uh, in the last 10 years, and it has transformed many of their lives to where they are building confidence and resilience in these young girls. And they've taken something that is so difficult and hard and turned it into a blessing for other people. And I really admire them so much for this. This is our family's charity now. Such a wonderful story. And I mean, it's, it, it, it's beautiful because not only does it honor your, uh, your niece, but it also honors your, uh, your father's vision for what we're talking about here as his last work. The book is Live Life in Crescendo. Your most important work is always Ahead of You by Stephen R. Covey and Cynthia Covey-Haller. Cynthia, thank you so much for being with us here on Timeless Leadership. Thanks so much, Scott. I've loved talking with you, and I sure appreciate your, your interest and support of this. No matter where you are in your life, and during a crisis, at the pinnacle of your success, or entering the second half, there's so much more ahead for you, as long as you remember to maintain a crescendo. I believe in you. Thank you for joining us and for being an advocate for timeless and principled leadership whenever and wherever you find it. I'm Scott Monty. Until next time, may you dream more, learn more, do more, and become more. For you are a leader.